G'day, mate. 40 here. Let's uh, turn it over to Tucker Carlson to get the show rolling. Thank Center you, Tucker. Of medicine. And the idea is very simple. Come on, Actually, come on. do it. Come on, man. New York by... Here we go. Here we go. Boom, boom, boom. Thanks, Tucker. Letitia James ran for attorney general of New York by promising to use her office to punish Donald Trump, because, of course, that's what law enforcement is for, to crush your political enemies. I look forward every day to suing Trump, James says. Well, now she is up for re-election, so she decided to actually do it. In a moment, we'll tell you what happened and what it means for the rule of law, assuming that still exists in the state of New York. But first, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. what happened. For thousands of years, clinical trials have been the center of medicine. And the idea is very simple. Before you operate on someone or inject people with some new drug, you run trials first to make certain that what you're doing will help the patient more than it hurts the patient. This is not a new idea. James Lynn did it back in the 18th century with his famous scurvy trials. In fact, medical testing has been going on since at least biblical times, because why wouldn't it? Daniel of Judah compared a vegetarian diet with the diet of the royal Babylonians over a 10-day period. So we had a control group, independent observers, the whole thing. It's not complicated, but it is essential. Through history, very few have questioned this practice because it makes obvious sense. But now, they are. Modern medicine seems to be abandoning the clinical trial. The FDA, for example, just authorized a COVID booster without even bothering to test it on people. They just gave it to a handful of mice and said, we're ready to go. Why take the time to see if it actually works? Who cares if the drug lowers sperm counts or causes miscarriages or produces grotesque blood clots and otherwise healthy people? So uh, maybe the canonical example here would be uh, Germany on the eve of World War One. There have often been parallels drawn between the German-UK relationship in the okay. late 19th and early 20th century. I don't know what happened to my sound, but I'm back. I, I think I'm going to skip uh, uh, Tucker Carlson here just going off on, on vaccines. Give it one more shot. Propelled by social media. It didn't exist before at scale. Now it does. Rather than pausing and asking, what is this and how can we help the children? They blow right past it. UCFS hospitals current guidance for treating so-called transgender youth is this. We okay. got this right from their website. This is important. Quote, As youth are transitioning this is in increasingly important. younger okay. ages, Here we go. Gen you should not be surprised to learn that some hospitals have decided to monetize the mental anguish of children. Consider the University of California at San Francisco Hospital. Supposedly, it's one of the best in the world. UCSF, despite its august reputation, is Hospital. not even trying to behave responsibly with children who've been convinced by TikTok they should change their sex. So a new trend comes along, propelled by social media. It didn't exist before at scale. Now it does. Rather than pausing and asking, what is this and how can we help the children, they blow right past it. UCFS 
hospital's current guidance for treating so-called transgender youth is this. We got this right from their website. Quote, as youth are transitioning at increasingly younger ages, genital surgery is being performed on a case-by-case basis more frequently in minors. Genital surgery on children. This is a very big step. It's irreversible. So you wonder, what is the medical basis for this? Well, a few sentences later, UCFS Hospital admits that there is no medical basis. Instead, quote, in the absence of solid evidence, providers often must rely on the expert opinions of innovators and thought leaders in the field. So UCSF is conducting genital surgeries on minors based on, quote, thought leaders in the field? What does that mean? Well, it means the human rights campaign is in favor of it. It means activists are pushing it. It means there's no scientific data to justify it. This is horrifying. Why is this happening? And how widespread is it? No one seems to be interested. Virtually alone in our media, Matt Walsh of the Daily Wire decided to find out the answers to those questions. And in that search, he obtained this video. It's from 2018. The video shows a physician called Shane Taylor from Vanderbilt University Medical Center, which like UCFS, SF has a global reputation for excellence. In this video, Taylor explains that Vanderbilt performs gruesome sexual surgeries on children. Why? Because those surgeries make Vanderbilt money. Some of our UMC financial folks in, 20, in August of 20, I'm sorry, October of 2016, starting a couple years ago, put down some costs of how much money we think each patient would bring in. And this is only including top surgery. This isn't including any bottom surgery. And um, it's a lot of money. These surgeries make a lot of money. Um, so female to male chest reconstruction can bring in $40,000. A patient just on routine hormone treatment, who I'm only seeing a few times a year, can bring in several thousand dollars that requires a lot of visits and labs. It actually makes money for the hospital. Oh, it makes money. So this huge new trend appears, again, driven not by medical research, but by social media, convincing children they can change their sex And Vanderbilt, rather than pausing and asking once again, how do we help these children? What is this? Decides, oh, there's money there. We're all in. Now, it's hard to believe that everyone at Vanderbilt Hospital could possibly be for this because it's completely irresponsible and wrong. So what would happen if a physician at Vanderbilt, a conscientious objector, disagreed with mutilating children for profit? That's a key question. So another doctor called Ellen Clayton explained what would happen. Again, this video we're about to show you has also been around since 2018, but no one in the media cared to look at it until Matt Walsh found it this week. If you are going to assert conscientious objection, you have to realize that that is problematic. You are doing something to another person, and you are not paying for the, the cost for your belief. I think that is a real, I mean, I think that's a real issue. But I just want you to take home that saying that you're not going to do something because of your conscientious, because of your religious beliefs is not without consequences. And and it should not be without consequences. And I just want to put that out there. We are given enormous, if you don't want to do this kind of work, Don't work at Vanderbilt. 
Oh, so if you object to this, leave. You can't work at Vanderbilt, quote. So Vanderbilt clearly thought this through. Not everyone's going to be for this, so let's just make it really, really clear. If you're not fully on board with sexually mutilating children for non-medical reasons on the basis of no medical evidence, then you just leave. But that wasn't enough. They anticipated that this is so horrifying that some doctors might still step out of line. They might tell 16-year-olds that they have a psychological disorder or this will pass or maybe stop watching so much TikTok. And no, we're not going to mutilate your genitals or cut your breasts off, at least until you're an adult. But if they said that, that would, of course, hurt the business model. So Vanderbilt recruited activists, trans activists, to bully physicians into submission. Watch. Buddy provides trained peer advocates for transgender patients who are coming for doctor's appointments or other healthcare related services. Whether you're looking for something that's related to medical transition, such as hormone therapy, or something completely unrelated, like breaking an arm or going to an ENT, we are here, here to help support any transgender patients that come through our doors. TransBuddy program is a one-of-a-kind in the nation, and institutions are looking to Vanderbilt to replicate and expand programs like ours. Oh. Trans buddies, right, enforcers, in other words. It's like having the mafia standing over your shoulder while you're on the witness stand. Doctors should be, in fact, have to be allowed to give politically unbiased counsel to their patients without being intimidated. But the whole point of a trans buddy system is to prevent that. In one video from Vanderbilt, the trans buddies say they're on the lookout for doctors who don't use the right pronouns because that's, quote, unsafe. Get in line or we'll crush you. So Matt Walsh brought all of this to the surface just the other day. And in response to it, rather than defend it or explain it, Vanderbilt University Medical Center took its entire website offline. And no doubt at some point they'll be claiming it's unsafe for them. That the people who are shocked by what they're doing are actually the criminals here. And that they're getting threatening phone calls. They're going to have to call the DOJ and anyone who comments on it is going to get a visit from the FBI. But the truth is, people who are horrified by this are not the bad actors. Vanderbilt is the bad actor. Vanderbilt has just admitted on camera to castrating children as young as 13 years old. This is from Vanderbilt's psychiatry's YouTube page. From 2020. We can provide gender affirming hormones on an individual who is on a pubertal blocker, depending on whatever kind of blocker they've chosen or we have discussed with them, or they can present to us at a later stage of puberty and then we provide the gender affirming hormones. Previously, the Endocrine Society recommended to start these at age 16, but we all know that would be delayed puberty, right? Not 16 year olds don't start puberty. So more recently, they did update that to say as early as 14 for compelling reasons. So we have some individuals who have started started gender-affirming hormones at 13 or 14 to be more like their peers. Has anyone at Vanderbilt Medical Center ever had a 14-year-old? And what sort of person would give a 14-year-old? Do you know what they're like if you've lived with one before? Would chemically castrate a 14-year-old because he or she saw something on TikTok that suggested it was a good idea? This is lunacy. But the same YouTube page also confirms that Vanderbilt will happily perform double mastectomies in adolescent girls after they've drugged them. Because, you know, it's pretty lucrative, actually. Here's plastic surgeon Julianne Winnicourt and physician's assistant Shaylin Vanderblomen. Watch. For any kind of top surgery, uh, we do require one letter of persistent, well-documented gender dysphoria by a licensed mental health provider. Um, we ensure that the patient is capable of making uh, fully informed decisions on the, their own. They're the age of majority. 
However, for a lot of our younger patients, um, again, if they are 16, 17 here at Vanderbilt, um, if they have been on testosterone, have a parental consent, um, we're able to do a lot of the top surgeries for those patients. So again, this is a hospital filled with physicians and ethicists and other adults who ought to be stepping in to protect children from their worst impulses, from the latest fad, from parents' neuroses. But they're not doing that because it's just too profitable to destroy the lives of kids. So who should be the backstop against this? Who are the people who oversee this who really should be exercising adult wisdom here and restraint? Well, that would be, by definition, the Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Board of Directors. And we're going to name them now in the hope that these people will do something to stop these crimes before the lives of more children are destroyed. So the board members would include Edith Carroll Johnson, John F. Stein, Jeffrey R. Balzer, Lucinda M. Baer, Daniel Deermeyer, Sarah J. Finley, John R. Ingram, Michael M. E. Johns, Samuel E. Lynch, Alexander C. Taylor, and Makiba Williams. Let's hope these people, this is the board that oversees all of this. Let's hope these people act immediately to stop this crime. But to be clear, it's not just Vanderbilt. We called UCLA's hospital today and they told us they'd be happy to mutilate our child. They just need a referral for insurance purposes. So did Wild Cornell Medicine. One of our producers, Sammy, called Cornell about getting breast implants for her 15-year-old son, who she said was, quote, questioning his gender identity. Just questioning. Here's what they said in response. It's regarding my son. He is um, questioning his gender identity and he was interested in uh, treatments. This would be for plastic surgery. Um, Dr. Otterburn does perform top surgery, if that's what you're referring to. If they're a minor, how do you get to that stage? I, all right, so I can um, make you an appointment to come in for a consultation to have a discussion. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, uh, for, it's for my son who's a minor, so I just, he can just come in or do I have to go with him or how does that work? Um, how old is he? A uh, 15. 15, okay. Um, yeah, I would come with him. Yeah, breast implants for a 15-year-old boy. Yeah, I'd come with them. Whatever. It's not just UCLA. The account Libs of TikTok, which the Washington Post is desperately trying to get scrubbed from the Internet, recently recorded a similar call with Boston's Children's Hospital. Listen. I just, I just need to want to know if, if you guys do service that age, you know, before obviously, before coming, you know, coming all the way for an in-person consult and going through all the paperwork well, and everything. Yeah, it depends. And each department is different. Some, some departments cut off for eighteen. How old, how old is your patient? Sixteen. Okay. All right. So they're in the clear. So, so they do. So they would do it um, for at the, for that age. Yes. Okay, great. Is it a common procedure that you guys do for for that age? Yes, um, we have um, all different type of age groups that comes in for that. For the gender, for the hysterectomy. Yes, ma'am. 
So Boston Children's Hospital is now playing the victim here. Anyone who criticizes this is a threat and a danger. And get DOJ involved. The Washington Post, New York Times jump on. Anyone who questions this is evil. But that, of course, is the opposite of the truth. The people doing this know that what they are doing is evil. They know perfectly well. And that's why Vanderbilt took down its website after Matt Walsh reported on it. There is no scientific basis for any of this. It does not help children. It harms children. That is known. It's also obvious. Were you not a parent? Researchers in Stockholm studied the effects of transgender surgery over a period of 30 years. What did they find? Well, we'll tell you again. Quote, persons with transsexualism after sex reassignment have considerably higher risks for mortality, suicidal behavior, and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. 30-year study. And it's not just one study. More than a 1,000 patients at the Tavistock Gender Clinic in the UK have just sued the clinic. They say they were pressured into life-destroying treatments, and that clinic is now being shut down. And that will happen in this country. This is a fad, and because there are no adults left, no one has put up a hand and say, slow down. But five years from now, we're going to look back in this, like a lot of things we've done recently, like destroying public art and statues and the COVID vaccine, so many other things that we've done without thinking about it in an environment where no one's allowed to protest. And we're going to look back in shame and horror. So Amy Tishelman is the lead author of the guidelines for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And Tishelman just admitted that recommendations for gender-affirming hormones and surgeries were removed from the internet to eliminate a paper trail and avoid lawsuits when inevitably practitioners followed them. Watch. We were thinking, and it was scary for me, about the potential uses of the chapter for legal and insurance contexts. Again, what we didn't want to do was create a chapter that would make it more likely that practitioners would be sued because they weren't following exactly what we said. This is completely wrong. They won't even defend it. They won't even answer simple questions about what it is. And again, it's irreversible. Hospitals are mutilating children. Boston Children's Hospital, UCSF, Cornell, UCLA, Vanderbilt, and others. And they should all stop immediately, no matter how much it hurts their business model, no matter how much it costs them. As we told you, Matt Walsh is the man who broke the story about Vanderbilt's abuse of children. He just met with Tennessee state lawmakers, Representative William Lamberth, State Senator Jack Johnson. They say they're working on a bill to shut this program down at Vanderbilt. Can't come soon enough. Matt Walsh joins us tonight. Matt Walsh, thank you so much. And for, among other things, illustrating how journalism can be a force for good, I think yours has been. Have you spoken to anyone at Vanderbilt Hospital about this directly? Well, Vanderbilt Hospital, I mean, we, we reached out for a statement when we first published the report. And at first, they didn't want to give a statement. And they, and they actually just took down, as you mentioned, they just deleted. So people have to understand, they deleted their entire transgender clinic website. They wiped it from existence. Uh, and then today, not to us, but uh, in general, they released a statement. And the, the interesting thing about the statement they released is that they do not, while they start by claiming there's misinformation and so on, they don't actually factually dispute anything in my report because they can't because everything that I said wasn't me saying it. I was just providing video evidence, much of which you, you played there. Well, we know for a fact, this is an absolute fact, that, that, that uh, Vanderbilt, they performed double mastectomies 
on minor girls, on children. They chemically castrate children, and they give them irreversible hormone drugs that change their bodies permanently. They're doing all of that to kids. And the other thing we should note, and I'm glad you mentioned all the other hospitals around the country, because the things I just mentioned, that's happening all across the country in every single state, in, in many hospitals and in many other medical clinics. All of those things are happening. And one of the reasons why it's allowed to keep happening is because people don't know about it because they're not talking about it. And I think for a lot of average Americans, people just walking down the street, it's sort of unthinkable. They can't imagine that this sort of thing is actually happening. But uh, it is, which is why we have to start by raising awareness about it. And we have to do that no matter... No matter the, the game the left plays by saying, if you, if you so much as mention what they're doing, yeah. it's incitement and terrorism, which is, which is absurd. But uh, we, can't, we can't bend to that tactic. We have to keep shining a light on this. Cutting the breasts off little girls? Sterilizing 14-year-olds? Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we're not the criminals here. And by the way, I've got to believe that not everyone on the board at Vanderbilt Medical Center is a bad person. I've got to believe a lot of these people had no idea this was happening. And I hope they know now, and I hope they do something tonight to end it. I appreciate your coming on and for all you've done on this. Matt Walsh, thank you. Thank you. So we did a whole documentary on the people who are responsible for this abuse. It's called Transgressive, the Cult of Confusion. You can stream it now on Fox Nation. We think it's good. Fox News Letters, we told you at the top, the Attorney General of the State of New York is suing not just Donald Trump, but his family. There is new information on this, and one lawyer getting to the bottom of it is Harmeet Dillon. She's here to explain what this means exactly. Harmeet, thanks so much for joining us. What, what is this? Oh, here we go. Uh, amazing cover story in Newsweek magazine. All right. Antidepressants work better than sugar pills only 15% of the time. And they don't work better than sugar pills even 15% of the time. Because what happens is in blind clinical trials, people who experience symptoms, right? When you take antidepressants, you get symptoms like uh, indigestion, constipation, etc. People who experience symptoms then have rational reasons to believe that the medication they were given was the real thing, not a placebo. So all sorts of people like bow down to putative science, capital S, and they think, oh, taking SSRIs, that's scientific. It's not some you know, gay mumbo jumbo of going to psychotherapy. Well, one thing we do know about taking SSRIs, they will shrink your brain, right? And the size of your brain has a big effect on how much intelligence you have. So you are less cognitively capable after you take SSRIs. So I've been banging on about this for years. Finally, cover story here in Newsweek. Right, antidepressants work better than sugar pills 15% of the time. All right, so Mark Horowitz is taking the popular antidepressant Lexapro every day for 15 years, and he eventually started studying th this type of science and uh, he decided he wanted to wean himself off it. And when he did so, he had panic attacks, sleep disruptions, and just incredibly debilitating depression. He had to move back to his parents' home in Australia. All right, symptoms far worse than anything he experienced prior to going on these drugs. So he went online. He found thousands of other people in similar problems. All right, they'd been unable to kick 
these psychiatric drugs known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, including Lexapro, Zoloft, and Prozac. I was on Zoloft for a few months. I was on Wellbutrin for a few months. Uh, went on, went off. No, no particular big deal either way. So supposedly doctors tell you, oh, withdrawal symptoms, they're going to just be mild and temporary. But for thousands upon thousands of people, they're not mild and temporary. Withdrawal brings about deeper depression. So let's dig deeper into the claims that pharmaceutical companies and the scientists they fund have been making about these very popular antidepressants. And uh, think about that, uh, that psychiatrist who, who wrote the famous book in the early 90s, listening to, to Prozac, Peter Kramer, right? Just a major promoter of SSRIs, all right? Hundreds of psychiatrists, the whole psychiatric profession, generally speaking, being huge promoters of SSRIs. These, these are the fundamentals of mental health treatment, right? And family doctors with no psychiatric training, next to none, now prescribe them for adults and children alike. In 2019, what out of eight Americans, 43 million, were taking an SSRI? And uh, there were so many prescriptions for Zoloft during COVID that the FDA warned of a drug shortage. But the evidence is overwhelming that doctors are vastly overprescribing SSRIs. Now, there seems to be some agreement that among some people with severe depression, they get some benefit. But overall, the, the price you pay in reduction of your brain size and in the negative symptoms that accompany going on, taking and getting off these medications far outweigh any benefits. So yeah, some people do get better on the drugs. In the vast majority of cases, it's not because of what's in the drug, right? There are all sorts of other treatments that are at least as effective and they don't carry the risks. So I'm more down with the placebo effect. If you were to tell me that my grass-fed beef organs right, we're just giving me a placebo effect of buoyant health, then, you know, I'm all on board with that. You know, I, I enjoy my supplements. I enjoy the placebo effect. I don't care if every supplement I've ever taken has only had a placebo effect. You know, I'm down with that. But SSRIs carry really bad consequences. And that we have an entire economy based on prescribing these things, billions and billions of dollars pushing these things is outrageous. And one of the most common arguments for things like SSRI inhibitors is that it's only restoring the, the chemistry in your brain to what it should be. All right. I remember when I was struggling with my chronic fatigue syndrome and people in 1992, 93 said, oh, you, you should try SSRIs. They would simply, you know, restore your serotonin levels. Well, this is nonsense. It's like, it's like chiropractors who tell you, oh, we're just unknotting the hose that is your spine. So chiropractors love this analogy. You take a hose, runs water, but then it gets knotted up, all right? And then the water stops flowing. So we're just going to unknot the hose, unknot your spine, so everything just starts flowing better, right? Overwhelmingly, chiropractic is a crock and another dangerous crock, right? The, the number of strokes that people get from getting uh, chiropractic care is quite disturbing. Perhaps you could address ethical dilemma of possibly disillusioning individuals who may be benefiting considerably from placebo effect. That's on them, right? If you need to be protected from being disillusioned about the placebo effect, that's on you. All right, it's more important to tell the truth here. 
Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. I am here to pursue the truth. I'm not here to worship at the Church of Science. I'm not here to worship at the Church of Anti-Science. I'm not here to worship at the Church of Pharmaceutical Companies. I'm not here to worship at the Church of Anti-Big Pharma. I'm not here to worship at the Church of the New York Times. I'm not here to worship at the Church of the Anti-New York Times. I'm not here to worship at the Church of Tucker Carlson. I'm not here to worship at the Church of Anti-Tucker Carlson. I'm just here to follow the truth. And if the truth leads me down the throat of Kimberly Cummings or Kendra Jade or Haley Rivers, that's where the truth leads me. Do you think I you know, wanted to be in that kind of situation? I was just pursuing the truth to the, the best of my ability. So sometimes you should trust the science, but you shouldn't automatically distrust the science. You shouldn't automatically trust the people who you know, go against the scientific consensus. Right? There's no magic key. So important paper came out this summer, the serotonin theory of depression, a systematic umbrella review of the evidence completely debunks the basis upon which pharmaceutical companies and doctors have pushed drugs like Prozac, Lexapro, and Zoloft for decades, right? This marketing has been based on the idea that depression is associated with deficits in the brain with regard to the chemical serotonin, just bogus. Now, pharmaceutical industry and elites have pushed this for about three decades now. It's a shorthand that doctors still use to explain to their patients how these drugs work. So about 90% of the public believes that low serotonin levels cause depression. This is absolute bunk. There's no evidence for this. So drug companies have convinced us that if you're sad, you should go to a doctor and get a pill. Well, generally speaking, sadness and depression is an adaptive response to loss, whether it's loss of prestige, loss of income, loss of a job, loss of a partner, loss of a friend, loss of a community, a normal, natural, healthy response to significant loss is to go into the type of sadness that is diagnosed as depression, that the medical profession has medicalized normal human sadness, going into a period of sadness. Let's say you retire from your job and you're kind of lost because you don't have a job. You, you don't have the, the thing that, that made you feel important in life. You don't have the thing that gave you a scorecard at the end of the day. So you will likely feel sad. And that is good because when you have these periods of sadness, you rethink your priorities, right? You re-examine your values. You re-examine your commitments. You think about how you might do things differently in the future. And then when you start planning out tentative ideas for the future, you also then play out how will that likely work out for me, for my family, for my kids, for my community, for, for my psychological health. And so that's the downtime where you get to reassess everything. When I was sick with, with COVID about uh, uh, six weeks ago, I, I found myself in an incredibly nihilistic space. Like all my, almost all my commitments, almost everything I believed in was at about 5% of the intensity that it normally is. Now, I did keep up my commitments to my 12-step program, to my 12-step sponsees. But other than that and what I needed to do to, to make money, I basically let almost all my commitments go. And that was a wonderful time as I came out of that illness to kind of reassess my priorities. Where do I want to spend my time? What do I really believe in? Where do I want to commit myself? So illness, sadness, loss, depression, these are usually adaptive, but in modernity, we have medicalized normal human sadness. And we've allowed doctors and psychiatrists make us believe that just normal parts of the human condition are a medical illness called a major depressive disorder. 
when generally speaking, what's called a major depressive disorder is a normal, natural, healthy, adaptive response to loss. So we're being told by doctors that our normal reactions to difficult situations, they're just a chemical brain problem, bro, that needs a medical solution. And we've got these very mild drugs that are very easy to stop. And this is not true. And neuroscientists have known for years that depression is far more than a simple imbalance in serotonin levels. And neuroscientists and psychiatrists have been trying to make this argument for well over a decade, including one psychiatrist at Harvard, that the whole basis for SSRIs is bunk. So we have this mistaken idea of, of what psychiatric drugs do, right? Th this idea that they target underlying biological mechanisms that produce the symptoms of, of depression and other mental disorders is not supported by evidence for any type of mental disorder, whether it's depression or schizophrenia or whatever. All we know is that drugs change normal brain states. And for some people, any change from their normal brain state is a good thing. And we know that drugs change normal mental states and normal mental processes in ways that are pretty similar to the use of recreational drugs like alcohol, right? So these SSRIs and other psychiatric drugs, generally speaking, obscure psychotic symptoms by superimposing an abnormal drug state over other effects similar to what happens when you have alcohol. And the small advantage in SSRIs that you see in some placebo-controlled trials, you can attribute that in large part just to the emotional numbing that reduces the intensity of feelings that cause the depression and the anxiety. But this comes at the expense of a fuller experience of the ups and downs of life. Like You can fill your stomach with food. You can eat a lot of food, and that will numb your feelings of depression and anxiety, but it will come at the expense of a fully exper fuller experience of life. So the crippling sadness that often follows reduction in SSRI medication, right? that's caused by the chemical dependence that the taker develops. right? SSRIs cause chemical dependence in the brain and these nasty withdrawal effects. So it's simply not useful, not helpful to think of depression as a brain disease. Depression is an emotional reaction to life circumstances, right? If you suffer loss, you're going to get sad. That's normal, natural, and healthy, right? People who suffer loss are much more likely to get depressed, right? If I step back right now and I broke my leg, I would feel quite sad. That would be a real bummer. Ah, Duvid says, I could not find liberal thinkers claiming human nature is naturally good. Don't seem to see claims on that issue. Well, you might need to do a little bit more work. My challenge to you was not that. My challenge to you was to name one important thinker on the left who believes that human nature is essentially bad or deeply, deeply fallen or flawed. You can't find one liberal thinker. Who said, no, that wasn't the challenge. So... I didn't know where you're doing your research, but that's the fundamental basis for the left-wing orientation. So you might start with Rousseau, right? The state of nature that in nature, man is just naturally good. And all the great left-wing thinkers built upon Rousseau's notion of the state of nature, where in nature, outside of civilization, people are free, people are happy, people are good, and it is civilization that makes people bad. And we have to remove civilization and open up the inherent goodness okay elliot blatt what's going on bro oh blessing bro it's another car call sorry about the audio no worries nothing but it? love nothing but love here mate yeah you're uh, this is one of my favorite topics you've been really uh 
been really hitting pay dirt lately, Luke. Thank you, sir. That uh, the uh, the stream the other night with the uh, the various figures on the alt right, their presentation styles, got me got me a little misty, Luke. It was uh, it's kind of like old times in a way. Oh Seeing yeah. Seeing all those old faces together. Yeah, that was those were good times, mate. Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, so a little uh. Like a pretty interesting week last week. One of our swimmers uh, drowned. One of your swimmers? Is there a whole club of you blokes? Yeah, there's a club. I mean, I didn't know the guy. There's like a hundred people, but uh, he uh, he drowned. It was quite a big ordeal, and uh, it's kind of well, it's kind of still processing. You know, speaking of sadness. Wow. Do you, do you know the circumstances? Did he have monkey pox? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a real choppy day, you know. A lot of wind was blowing, and uh, you know, I wouldn't even have, I wouldn't even attempt to go out because the waves were that you know choppy. Uh, but he did anyway, and uh, he sort of overestimated his capacity, and uh, he just, you know, the, when the, when the wind's blowing like that, you can like swallow water really uh, suddenly, you know. Yes. If you're not expecting a wave, water can just. You go to inhale, and you're not instead of air, you're getting water, and then you're in a, you're in a heap of trouble. So that's what happens. Wow, wow. I mean, that's so, sad. But but I mean, yeah. obviously, going for a swim in the ocean is about one ten thousandth as, as dangerous as driving a car on a freeway. Yeah, but uh, you know, going swimming in a in, in the regular ocean, but in a choppy ocean, uh, you know, if you're out there long enough. The odds increase. Yeah, particularly if you don't have the right stuff. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the reason I was, so the reason that then, but I'm on this sort of chat group, you know, uh, that's related to this community. So people are sending chats like day after day after day, and they're sort of grieving through the chat, you know, through SMS. Yeah. You know, and, and it's weird. Like, there's a lot of women in this group. And they sort of get into this weird competition, like they're just one-upping with each other about how sad and shocked they are and how much love they're sending out and how many good vibes they're sending out. And it's sort of just, it's sort of like a nuclear reaction where it just kind of feeds on itself. And now it's been about, I don't know, 10 days, and it's sort of finally starting to die down. But, um, and, you know, part of their grieving process is they share this onslaught of of, uh, emojis. Oh boy! You know, like like rainbows and and hearts and you know all this positive imagery, but it just this you know, and it's like, ah, oh, God, I don't want. I just keep my mouth shut, but it's just kind of cringe after a while, bro. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, generally speaking, I hang out with blokes. So I don't hang out with Sheila's. I mean, I mean, yeah. that that's how the world works. Yeah, that's the natural state of things, you know. Yeah, and we know, and we know how I like nature, Luke. You know, yeah, I mean, I like, win, they lose. <laughs> That's how the world fucking works. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, I didn't really have a I, okay. So, but anyway, so we've had our little tête-à-tête in the past around this whole nature question, right? Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion that you know, all things natural are good. Yeah, and you know. Anything that's sort of artificial is worthy of suspicion. And aren't you kind of implicitly making my argument? No, Elliot. The, the, the whole point is I don't, I, I, don't, I don't bow down at the altar of 
at any approach. I don't bow down at the altar of Republicans or Democrats, of the New York Times or the anti-New York Times, of the natural crowd or the anti-natural crowd, of the science establishment versus the anti-science uh, lobby. I, I stand in the middle, man. I, I don't think that uh, you can reliably count on any particular group. Yeah, well, but you seem to be making the same arguments. Like, when I say natural, it's like, what, it's, it's actually more scientific, right? Natural means things that are close to our innate biological processes. So they have the least, um, uh, you know, the least capacity for sort of unforeseen reaction. You know, whereas if you have these complicated industrial processes that sort of isolate certain compounds, your body's not used to um, assimilating compounds like that in such a raw state. And so there are always side effects. And uh, I don't know. It just, it, it just seems so obvious to me. It seems like there's just so much unnecessary suffering because we all believe that there's a miracle pill out there, or that most people believe there's a miracle pill out there. And it's the job of scientists to find it and then charge a lot of money for it. And I don't know, it's just, it's just like another facet of a sort of depraved culture we're in, in my opinion. Right, well, take something like genetically modified food. There's this enormous uh, backlash against genetically modified food, but we haven't found any evidence that it's dangerous. All we see that it does wonderful things, it makes crops more productive, it, uh, it meets necessary like vitamin and protein deficiencies so genetically modified foods are not natural but generally speaking they're superior to non-genetically modified foods uh supposedly if you think that um you know do we know all of the effects right if we isolate if we say okay we're going to evaluate gmos on this basis meaning how productive they are per acre and that's the only metric we use uh, yeah, perhaps you're right, but what if you're overtaxing the soil? Maybe the soil is not meant to be uh, depleted in such a rapid manner, and that uh, the, sort of the natural cycles of, so of soil require that only so, so many nutrients come out at a certain rate. You know, I, I don't know anything about GMOs. I'm just taking it. I'm using it's a, it's a it's a example of uh, you know does. Is it necessarily good that food is really easy and cheap and abundant, right? Maybe shoot, food needs to be a bit more scarce. Right? You go down the street and you see a lot of people, you know, perhaps they could skip a meal or two. I'd, um, uh, I disagree. Yeah, I mean, I think... I don't see the, the fundamental problems with human beings, generally speaking, as uh, certainly in, in prosperous countries like ours as being outside of them. The problem is not that Coca-Cola is so cheap and easily available. The problem is that people are using Coca-Cola to meet needs that should be met, uh, better met elsewhere. So you can, you can fill yourself up and with, with Coke or with uh, food to dull your you know, underlying feelings of depression and anxiety. But the problem's not the coke. The problem is that you have these unbearable feelings that you don't know how to deal with. 
yeah. All right, but, so, but wouldn't part of these feelings be associated with uh, a sedentary lifestyle? Right? Yeah, you, you know, I, I have a holistic view of these things, but it's not that merely you're drinking Coke, but it's that you're not exercising, remaining sedentary, and drinking Coke. So you're compounding problems, and you have a runaway uh, pathology. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, but I'll give you another non-natural example. So I am, I am 56 years of age. And I don't have any physical problems of which I'm aware. I can do pull-ups. I can go for a run down the street. I can swim. I can, you know, lift uh, 70 pounds. I, I can do everything that I, I need to do. But I don't go out and do a lot of jogging because, generally speaking, jogging really you know, puts a lot of pressure on your cartilage. So the, the way that I primarily exercise is I ride an exercise bike and I watch movies and TV shows while I do that. So that's not natural, but it's a way that I get a lot of excellent exercise. Okay. Um, fair enough. You know, and it's, it's but, okay. All right, we're, we're a bit on tangent here, but you are, you are doing exercise. Therefore, your metabolism is being uh, accelerated for points. Uh, for for periods of time, you're sort of you're metabolizing your your food, but you're also sort of through the metabolizing of food, you're also sort of metabolizing your emotions. Yes, right? I, I totally end, agree. Uh, but it's not natural. I'm riding an exercise bike while I'm watching a movie. I mean, very unnatural. But okay. it, it makes well, me happy. Okay. Uh, yeah, all right. Fair enough. But it sort of misses the main thrust of my point. You know, yes, it's technically unnatural to work, to live that way, but whatever. Um, it's a, it's a very on the spectrum of things unnatural, like hormone replacement on one side, and then you have Luke on the uh, on his exercise bike on the completely distant opposite pole, right? Yes, I agree. Um, yes. Okay, so so I, I just don't think your 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 case here is actually fitting to what I'm saying. But here we have we have all of this transgender nonsense, borderline crime, if not outright crime, um, and it's all taking place. Uh, sorry, I have to make a complicated turn here. It's all taking place with this this unquestionable with 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 science, right, as being the the the, the only determinant about what's good here. Right, we have this quote-unquote problem that has no physical basis. Uh, it's somebody says they think they're a woman, and science is able to do something, this highly artificial thing, and it's completely destroying the, the lives of the recipients, or will, you know, end up destroying the lives of the people who, who receive these quote-unquote treatments. Yes, so, I, 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 I agree. Is, yeah. We need a new frame. We need a new frame of, to think about science and health. Um, we need to question science more, and we need to rely on our intuition more. And we have to look at results more. So we can't, we can't just say this giant person, uh, just because they're not dead uh, and they're taking this drug, means that the drug is fine. It's safe and effective, right? We just have such... Uh, uh, artificial heuristics uh, to determine health, and it's just terrible. 
Anyway, I didn't mean to call into rant, Luke. I, I just, you got me, you know. I felt like I needed to call in because Duvid had been ho- hogging all the time, bro. I'm glad you called in, man. This is the show to, to call in and, and rant. This is okay. a, a safe space for you. Okay, so when are there other uh, performative characteristics beyond, beyond going up the stairs that you were going to bring out from that book, or uh, is that the last of that uh, mode of content? Oh, you're talking about uh, Roger Love and the the celebrity voice coach? Yeah. So we learned about going up the stairs, but are there other things that we need to learn? Uh, probably. I, he's got he's got a, a deal right now. He's got a special. I can get w- one of his programs for just $47, bro. Whoa. Yeah. And, and if I order today, I, he throws in, like, this extra bonus module. But wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm about to buy a crock pot that I found on Craigslist. One of these. Uh, I, I just, it's, I'm hitting on all cylinders today, Luke. Like, it's been a good day. Have you ever swallowed a load that you knew was just, you know, the, the, the person was just on all sorts of meds? <laughs> yes. And it's so embarrassing. It's like, ah, do I Tastes better, something? doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, accurate, yeah. Accurate. But you know, yeah, you, you, just, you just feel like you don't want to seem ungrateful. You know? Right, right. You don't want to be impolite. I mean, right. like, it's, it's just, it's not very nice to make a face at, at those times because, you know, the other person is in such a vulnerable position and you're in a vulnerable position. And so you don't want to make ways when you're both. You don't, want to, look, you don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, Luke. Yes. You don't want to look at a gift horse in the mouth. Oi, vey. Oi. Not, this is not a wholesome show. Like, we got, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm looking for parking, Luke, so I don't know. Oh, I remember and, uh, I was on, I was on uh, lithium. So what happened was I, I'd been, I'd been kicked out of, uh, 109 Orthodox synagogues, and the kicker was I'd never done anything wrong. It was never my yeah. fault. It was just, you know, other people had these irrational prejudices against me. And so finally I go to synagogue number 110, and the, the wrist rabbi is willing to stick his neck out for me, and he says, yeah, you can come, you can pray here, but that's it. You can't go to Kiddush. You're, you're on, like, semi-suspension because of, like, all this, you know, all these negative things that I'm hearing about you in the community. And so eventually he starts to loosen the, the suspension and I get to go to a singles singles lunch at the synagogue and we all get to, we all sit in a circle and we get to share something about ourselves and what we love. And so I talked about how much I love cynicism. And I also... I think I may have asked a young woman if she wanted to shake my lulav. Uh, a lulav is a is a citrus uh, is a citrus plant that you shake during the the holiday of Sukkot. And anyway, she misunderstood that as some kind of like sexual come on, and she got quite upset. And then, given my reputation, my my innocently asking. This this woman I didn't know she wanted to shake my lulav. It got just totally misinterpreted, and so it, 
like some pretty negative consequences. So I went to my psychiatrist and relayed what happened. And he said, uh, I think you might benefit from going on lithium. And so I, I went on lithium for about five years and there was like a metallic odor. I don't know if metallic is an odor, but there was a, a metallic odor to me. And I, I drooled a little bit more. And I gained like uh, 15 to 20 pounds, but my emotions were much more calm. So, you know, who knows what horrible things I might have done if, if I hadn't have been on lithium for those five years. Um, now, when you say you were calm, do you think, did you feel like, did it feel like a real calm or did it feel like a sort of a, uh, like an artificial suppression of, of bad feelings? It felt you know I mean? so good. It felt so good. All the manic highs and lows that used to characterize my life just went away. I remember yeah. I would try to, I would, I would essentially prescribe myself the dosage because I didn't like the side effects of getting fat and I didn't like my, yeah. my face getting puffy. So I tried to do without it. But then when I started seeing myself acting out in, in negative ways, then I would go, oh, I better, better. So what would happen is I would get on these, jaunts where I'd feel like there were no consequences for whatever I did. I was going to this this Torah class that was very essential to my well-being in the Orthodox Jewish community, and there was a young woman there, and I was like stroking her leg all, all through Torah class, and it was not the time or the place to stroke a woman's leg. I, I didn't get her permission. It was totally inappropriate. It, it was a Torah class. And so when I got home and I was kind of like feeling really high because, you know, I'd been stroking this woman's leg or, or during Torah class. But when I, I felt like there were no negative consequences for, for what I was doing. And then I, as I came off the high, I realized that getting into that state where I feel like there are no negative consequences for what I'm doing, that's a very dangerous state for me. Uh, because it's usually accompanied by a similar low where I feel like there, there's no way I can get out of my troubles that nothing no, I, I will do will, will matter. So I recognize that, and I started, you know, popping the lithium. So is, is this the one that said, you know, my my, uh, my children fear you, my wife hates you? And <laughs> uh, no, that was, that was back in uh, 2001. It was like total misunderstanding. I mean, th this guy just and his family, they just, they just knew me too well. And so uh, I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't put one over on them. And, uh, yeah, so that, that was kind of sad because they knew me really well. It wasn't like, oh, you know, these were people who barely knew me. It wasn't like, oh, they didn't know the real 40. No, they, unfortunately, they knew the real 40. Oh, and, then, them, yeah. and then they had those reactions. Well, uh, but, yeah, it's interesting what you say. Like, you know, drugs do alter your judgment. So, yes, uh, but they, they, altered, they altered my judgment in a positive way. When I was calmer, I made better decisions. I asked fewer women if they wanted to shake my lulav. I, I you know, spoke out less inappropriately. I, I had fewer uh, depressed stages where I felt like nothing I said or did mattered in any way. I had fewer medic stages where I felt like nothing I said or did could have any negative consequences. So my life ran much more smoothly. Did you say when you did you say um, would you like to shake my lulav until the juice runs down my leg? Is that how you, maybe no, how you no. Phrase? I'm a 19th century Victorian gentleman. I, I would God forbid that I I speak to a, a woman that way in an Orthodox synagogue, bro. That's that's not how I roll. 
So like the so the, no, Orthodox aren't into Led Zeppelin, huh? This is a place of God and Torah and holiness, bro. It's not like, you know, the, the gay bathhouses where you hang out in. <laughs> That's true, bro. You got me there. Um, oh, God, I don't think I'm going to be able to park, Luke. I'm not going to be able to get this. Um, it's a Dutch oven, Luke. You ever cook? You don't cook, Luke. It's part of your problem. I had relatives who died in a Dutch oven, so this is a very <laughs> sensitive... <laughs> Oh, I kind of teed that one up, Luke. Um, and Frank. And Frank was my great-grandmother's niece. Yeah, God. I was read that at a very young age. It really messed me up. And the, uh, the other one, I, my mother read me this book about a slave dancer who worked on the slave ships, and he had to play the flute to the slaves on the slave boats. And, oh, God, that was depressing. Man, yeah, I, just, I don't know. Uh, it's amazing I can think it all. I, I think one of the, the books that disturbed me was North Dallas 40. It was based on the Dallas Cowboys. And, like, the the sexually explicit scenes in that book, they kind of, like, flipped a switch in my head when I was 14. And it's like, I got to get some of this. And uh, it kind of led me off the, the straight and narrow path of Seventh-day Adventism. Yeah, then you started to get into some handiwork. Yeah, well... I didn't start. Actually, I didn't. I didn't start yanking it till my junior year of high school. So, I, I really am a truly righteous man. <laughs> yeah. So uh, hold on. Oh, I'm doing some dangerous parking here, Luke. Oh, I wish you could see this. Everyone would be impressed. Oh, right, there we go. Oh, Luke, I think I gotta hang up. I gotta go make this transaction. Okay. Blessings. Uh, all right. Blessings. Shalom. Blessings. Okay. Shalom. Okay, we're we're in Elul. I mean, do you feel Elul? I mean, we're, the king is in the fields. Like we're we're about to meet our our maker. Like you can hear the the call of the the shofar. Like uh, Rosh Hashanah begins Sunday night. Truly a, a solemn time. And speaking of solemn, let's get back to this uh, amazing Newsweek article on how SSRIs essentially just have a a placebo effect, right? And almost all the things we've been told about them are just wrong. And uh, psychotherapy tends to be much safer and more effective than, than drugs. And uh, yeah, taking taking these drugs definitely does diminish the size of your brain. And... Uh, there doc there's doctor's advice here you shouldn't take SSRs for longer than uh, 6 to 9 months so there are 26 million Americans who've been on these drugs for more than 2 years i probably should be talking to their doctors about that Harvard Medical School right did the most comprehensive analysis to date of all the antidepressant clinical trial data all right they found that 10 of the most popularly prescribed antidepressant medications made a meaningful difference in only 15% of the patients who took them and almost always those patients suffering from the most severe depression. So the active ingredients of SSRIs may make the biggest difference in patients who have severe depression, but they're only of minor utility to those suffering from mild to moderate depression. So why are they so overprescribed, right? Because there's a whole business model that's, that's very effective. And we've essentially medicalized 
ordinary human sadness. Now, what do you need to get approval for a new drug? All the FDA requires is results from two clinical trials that demonstrate the drug is more potent than the placebo effect. So even if it's just a little bit more potent than the placebo effect, that's good. Now, you have no limit on how many chemical clinical trials a drug company can run on the drug just to get those two positive results. So you could have eight negative results, two positive results, and you can get approved. And generally speaking, drug makers and pharmaceutical companies, they hide all the negative results. So the failure rate of trials of antidepressants is far higher than people understand. Like it happens all the time. So 40% of antidepressant trials end up failing. So even though almost half of antidepressant trials fail, 94% of the published trials come out positive. I mean, what a disconnect. And uh, the placebo effect, you can get it from just taking all sorts of things. I mean, you can probably get it from religious or, or spiritual beliefs that don't have nearly the, the downside of SSRIs. And the psychiatric establishment, they know these facts, but they're not ready to curtail prescribing SSRIs. Right? For 40 years, they've been making bank out of this, just like the huge unnecessary amount of surgery removing women's wombs, uvorectomy, taking out a woman's ovaries, right, tends to reduce lifespan, reduce sexual satisfaction, create depression, but doctors make a lot of money from it. So when a doctor comes to treat something like cancer or cardiovascular disease, they have many options to choose from. But in the mental health field, they don't have the same diagnostic tools, right? We're still in the 19th century, right? We don't have any blood tests for psychiatric illness. So this is just a terrific Newsweek story here, just going into all these different studies, talking to the smartest people in the field. And just contrasting the difference between what's popularly understood about SSRIs and what people who actually study these things understand. Now, let's get to the New York Times. Guys, this is really scary. There's a completely legal way that the Republicans have figured out to disrupt our elections. Republicans are going to rig our elections. I'm kind of confused. Everyone keeps saying that Republicans are destroying American democracy. This is a coordinated attack on our democracy. 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. Like, obviously, this isn't a great sign for our democracy. Things got really nasty and violent, but ultimately our democracy held. Right? Democrats say that the GOP is retooling the voting system in their favor. It's anti-democratic. They are quite literally trying to dismantle democracy. Like, should we actually oh, be no. terrified about the future of American democracy? And what oh. exactly am I afraid of here? Like, what is actually the threat? And we're going to the Capitol. So much of this is caught up in, like... Wow, this is just so scary. Guys, did you realize that our democracy is at risk? that Republicans and Trump supporters are trying to destroy our democracy. Notice they never define democracy, right? So what they mean is Republicans 
have ideas about diminishing democratic dominance of our key institutions. Polarizing, vague political rhetoric. To get to the bottom of this, I asked for help from Michelle Cottle, a seasoned political reporter. I don't know about you, but whenever I want to know about politics, I immediately turn to Michelle Cottle. No, actually, I don't. I've, uh, I've been acquainted with her work for two decades, and I've never seen anything that uh, makes me think, oh, wow, this is an insightful reporter. He's written for a bunch of top publications. Bunch of top publications of the left. He's covered elections of every type, from presidential all the way down to, like, local school boards. Always from a left-wing perspective. Isn't it amazing that in all her reporting, all her interviewing of people, all her digging down deep to get to the bottom, to stay on top, it always comes out that the left is best. Amazing. She's now on the Times editorial board and is probably one of the best people to help line me out on how freaked out I need to be about American democracy. Absolutely. Who better than Michelle Cottle to educate us on how freaked out we need to be about American democracy I mean, this woman's just got such a consistent track record, like always pushing the left-wing approach and uh, people on the right are never right and uh, the left is always best. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? Michelle brought me deep into the plumbing of American democracy, something I hadn't ever seen before. She showed me something that changed the way I see my country, something playing out in the darkest corners of American politics. A quiet mobilization of money by people who are fighting to reclaim what they believe was Wow. Money, guys. Money is being used in politics. Now, Barack Obama in 2008, he forego federal funding because he had so much money as opposed to John McCain. But when Democrats have far more money than Republicans, that's just a good and beautiful thing. It's only scary when Republicans have, say, equal amounts or maybe even more money than, than the Democrats and, and they're using it in ways that the Democrats don't approve to reclaim what they believe was stolen from them. So let's be clear. Democrats have held the last one, two, three times that Republicans won the presidency, that every single one of those was a stolen election. Right? Democrats hold that Republicans stole the election in year 2000, in year 2004, and in year 2016. But when Democrats make the point that uh, when they lost at the polls, it was because it was stolen from them, that is true and good and holy. So when Democrats want to reclaim what they believe was stolen from them, right, we should bow down to that and not question it. But if Republicans use the identical rhetoric, my God, that's fascism. Stolen from them. And who are seeking to change not only who can vote in this country, but who counts those votes. An attempt wow. Democrats have never been concerned with these two questions. Democrats have never had any interest in controlling who votes and who counts the votes. This is just a, a scary Republican thing. My God. Attempt to reshape our election system without any of us really knowing. Ultimately. And Democrats, you see, they've never tried to reshape our electoral system, right? They, they've never, ever tried to reshape our electoral system. Democrats have never tried to shift the rules in ways that favor them. Oh, actually, they did very significantly, very competently in the 2020 election, right? All sorts of rules were changed. Democratic lawyers were very effective at changing the rules in their favor. And donors like Mark Zuckerberg, all right, he poured money into Democratic precincts to get out the vote, far more money than he sent to Republican precincts to get out the vote. So everything here that he's describing 
as you know bad stuff coming from the republicans democrats have a long track record of doing the exact same thing so how about some context here mate recently michelle showed me that yes i should be pretty damn scared about the future of our democracy but not for the reasons i expected why wouldn't they make all the machines available immediately republicans in congress are spreading conspiracy theories you gotta contest every so what does it mean when Democrats say you should be scared about our democracy? Generally speaking, it means that they are less confident that they will get to hold on to power. This election was a fraud. My big question has been, like, how real is this threat? Like, how worried should we actually be about this? So when people think of threats to democracy, usually the first place they go is voter suppression, in part because it's just the easiest to explain. And there's just been so much media coverage of voter suppression, right? They're just holding, holding innocent people down. They're, they're denying our fellow Americans the right to vote. But from the academic literature on this topic, the, the evidence for voter suppression having any sort of significant effect is minuscule, minuscule, right? So all the rhetoric by Democrats, all the rhetoric by the, the media, all the news stories by the media, there's virtually no evidence for it. I, I'm fine with saying that Republicans are engaged in voter suppression. I, I think that's probably true, but it's probably true to about 0.05%. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. This map shows all of the states that have passed laws that make it harder to vote in recent years. There's like dozens of these laws since 2020. Right, and uh, Democrats never do anything to make it harder for Republicans to vote, right? These laws are all over the place. Shrink the time window for applying for absentee ballots. Making it harder to find drop boxes where you can, like, submit your vote. Right, and there's been extensive academic literature on this, and it finds out that the voter suppression effect of this, you know, verges on nil. It is tiny, tiny, tiny. And uh, the academic literature on this is robust. I mean, they've studied this comprehensively. So all this talk about voter suppression as a real significant, serious problem in America is bogus. Tighten requirements for voter ID. Making it easier to purge registration so that people have to re-register. Ban snacks and Making water. it harder to Limit vote the early. Of part of registration. Places. General confusion around voting. To make it as unpleasant and difficult to vote as humanly possible. But hold on a second. This used to really confuse me. Why would a political party want to make fewer people vote? Like, how does that help the Republicans? Well, it turns out that the logic here is that if it's easier to vote, lower income Americans, minorities, young people who usually vote in lower numbers will turn out in higher numbers and vote for Democrats. So the GOP is making it harder to vote so they can so I, I've been reading this woman on and off for, for two decades. I've never once like learned like any insight from her. It's just like party line. When elections. That is the conventional wisdom here. Turns out that this logic is a little bit simplistic. And if more people voted in America, there would be more Republican votes than Democratic votes, right? This is a sea change, right? For 40 years when the percentage of the population that came out to vote increased. Generally speaking, that was good for the Democrats. No longer. Trump has turned that around. So reluctant voters now more likely to vote for Republicans.
than to vote for Democrats. And it often has an unintended effect or the opposite happens of what people are expecting. Political scientists have been studying this recently. And these studies have been finding that even though both parties kind of take this assumption for granted, that easier voting benefits Democrats, that's not always the case. And that it can often be the opposite. Like this. That's not always the case. It's not even generally speaking the case. All right. Now, reluctant voters are more likely to vote Republican than Democrat. Not always. I mean, that's such a lame phrasing study from the University of Utah that shows that more mail-in voting actually benefits Republicans. Huh? What? That doesn't make any sense. Isn't it the Republicans that are voting all these voter suppression laws? In the last couple of years, Virginia has gone the opposite direction of voter suppression. They pass laws to make it. So people do a lot of things that are not for the reasons that they say, all right? When Democrats lost the presidential American election in 2016, they were outraged that the election had been stolen from them, and they then engaged in a campaign to try to delegitimize Donald Trump. And there was a tremendous amount of attention focused on Trump's you know, alleged ties with Russia and how Vladimir Putin and the Ruskies stole the election. Right? This was a way for Democrats to vent and to perhaps be effective at kneecapping the Trump administration, making it more difficult for, for them to govern. But there's never serious reason to believe that Russians uh, you know, hacked our 2016 election. So Republicans say, oh, most Republicans, over 70%, believe that the 2020 election was not fair. So there's a lot of rhetoric about voter fraud, and then there's a lot of things being done in reaction to that voter fraud. But many of the things being done are just a way to give some sort of physical, concrete expression to your feelings of disappointment that you lost. Right? People frequently do not do the things that they do for the reasons that they state. So Republicans are engaged in all sorts of pointless uh, manipulation of, of voting rules that uh, isn't necessarily going to help them. Easier to vote. And what we saw last year was that voters turned out at a vastly higher rate than they had in probably two decades. And Republicans swept the statewide offices and they took back the House of Delegates. So it was the exact inverse of what people expect in these situations. Remember last March when President Biden called Georgia's restrictive voting laws? Jim Crow 2.0. And yet this last summer's primaries, the first election since these laws were passed, went really smoothly. And early voting surged. At the end of the day, like this voter suppression stuff is maybe overblown and not that important. So let's not let the GOP off the hook here. This mission to erect barriers is anti-democratic. These laws are appalling and... Fine, but there's no evidence that they're significant. And, and calling them, oh, these laws are racist. Oh, racism is just a made-up moral category, right? You could just as easily argue that you are racist and the Democrats are racist for believing that uh, African-Americans are somehow less capable than other people of obtaining government ID. And frankly, racist. But the laws are unpredictable and can also wind up discouraging Republican voters to turn out as well. Does that mean that the death of democracy is kind of just overblown here and that we shouldn't actually be that worried? Oh, no, 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 no. I did not say that. I just said that voter suppression efforts aren't as predictable and sometimes not as effective as people fear they are. But there is something else going on. Something that way fewer people are paying attention to, in part because it's unsexy, tedious, complicated, 
boring and generally taking place way down the political food chain. Okay, so what do you think she's talking about? All right, now this is interesting and this is important. At the state level and even the hyper-local level. Frankly, anytime I hear local politics, like I know we're supposed to pay attention to it, but I kind of like start to fall asleep. It's like not where I want to pay my attention. But this is what should really tick you off and scare the holy living out of you. It has less to do with controlling who can vote and everything to do with who decides which votes actually count. And oh, so Democrats have never been engaged in trying to decide which votes count. Democrats have placed tremendous resources in trying to influence which votes count. Right? Democrats have not wanted to count, uh, say, overseas military votes if that was in their interest. Right? I, I don't have much patience for good guys and bad guys here. Right? You have two teams that are trying to win. Right? It's not like the Republicans are the bad guys or the Democrats are the bad guys. Democrats have been more effective. Right? Democrats have been more involved in counting the votes. And uh, now Republicans, for the first time in my lifetime, are getting more involved in counting the votes. And they're not just ceding counting the votes to the Democrats. I don't see that as a terrible thing. I, I'm not losing sleep that our country is about to lose its democracy. This is where Michelle pointed me in a different direction, away from fixating on voter suppression, and instead encouraging me to look deeper into the very plumbing of the American voting system. This space that most of us have never really looked at. So welcome to our incredibly decentralized voting system in America. It's where you vote. It's where your votes are counted. It's the poll workers and precinct officers and county commissioners and election boards and secretaries of state that certify results. Most of us don't know anything about this because honestly, most of us want this version of politics. So which of the two teams is more likely to make politics their life? Right? For most Republicans, their life revolves around work, family, religion, hobbies, interests, community. All right. It's Democrats who are far more likely to make politics the burning core of their life, who are much more likely to be you know, deeply politically involved, to be political activists. I mean, how many Republican activists have you heard of? It's uh, almost an oxymoron. Uh, almost by definition, a political activist is on the left. So now, for the first time in my lifetime, Republicans are getting involved in the machinery of what they used to just leave to the devil. 2020 race is revving up. Whoa! Bring it on. But it's down here where the votes are cast, where they are totaled, where we meet the people who count those votes. The government officials you've never thought about. A county clerk in New Mexico, a precinct officer in Michigan, a secretary of... So who's more likely to get involved in being a precinct officer? Someone who's conservative? who, generally speaking, is religious, generally speaking, is married, generally speaking, has kids, who, generally speaking, has a job, or Democrats who, say, aren't married, don't have a job, aren't religious. Obviously, Democrats are much more likely to make religion, to make politics the center of their lives and to get involved in, in politics and even at the, the precinct or the local level. If state in Nevada. And no, not that secretary. And... I don't know about you, but I've just been hearing from the news media for, for as long as I've been around that getting involved in politics is a good thing. We need to encourage people to get more involved in politics. 
We need people to go out there and vote. We need people to become activists. We need people to take action. We need people to volunteer. We need people to step up and become more involved in politics. So now Republicans for the first time in my lifetime are getting more involved in politics. And here's the New York Times telling us that that's a terrible thing. We should be very, very afraid. Every state has a secretary of state and it is way less sexy than international diplomacy. But yeah, according to Michelle, this is where the action is, where the real assault on our democracy is happening. Trump's great gift as a... So the real assault on our democracy is the Republicans are starting to get more involved in local politics, right? So Republicans are getting more into politics. Republicans are making more efforts in politics. Republicans are becoming more active in politics. Republicans are stepping up and volunteering more in politics. Republicans are organizing more in politics. All these things that we're told are great, that the news media is pushing. Have you voted? Right? Now, when Republicans do it, well, this is bad. A top-notch demagogue is getting people fired up to believe whatever... This is absolute nonsense that... that uh, any demagogue can get people fired up to believe whatever they want to tell them. What type of people supported Adolf Hitler? People whose views and life experience led them in the same direction as Hitler. What type of people supported the communist takeover of Russia and, and China? The type of people whose interests were aligned with a communist takeover. What type of people opposed Hitler? People whose interests and values were opposed to Hitler. Hitler's, you know, brilliant oratory and demagoguery didn't change minds. All right, we have no evidence that mass propaganda changes large numbers of minds. We did not evolve to be gullible. If we evolved to be gullible, we would not be here. We would have died out. All right, we evolved to be highly suspicious of other people trying to manipulate us. We did not evolve to be equally skeptical of our own thinking, right? Because that would not be adaptive because that would diminish our enthusiasm and our confidence so to be adaptive to create organisms that are that adapt and navigate an environment effectively you would want them to have confidence in their own judgments and to be highly skeptical and suspicious of other people trying to manipulate them right we did not evolve to be stupid and gullible and anyone who thinks that, that donald trump is a master demagogue who can get people to believe anything he says is completely deluded. There's absolutely no evidence for that, for Donald Trump or for any demagogue. It is just nonsense. People support Donald Trump because their interests and values align with Donald Trump. People oppose Donald Trump when their interests and values are opposed to Donald Trump. It has nothing to do with his amazing oratorical skills. It has nothing to do with TV ads. This woman is not very wise. Or he tells them is true. That gets really dark really quick. There's absolutely no evidence that that's going on in any numbers. There is zero evidence, right? The type of people who support Donald Trump are people who are aligned with the things that he's saying, whose values and interests are aligned. There's no evidence that Donald Trump has transformed tens of thousands of people to vote and support him against their interests and against their values. So if you want to understand it, you're going to have to stick with me as we dive into this system. Because it's this system that is being infiltrated by an army of Trump-supporting Americans to re- So when Republicans get involved, that the system is getting infiltrated, 
when Democrats get involved, the system is getting strengthened. It's getting empowered. It's they're coming alive. It's only a good thing when Democrats get involved. But when Republicans do the very same thing that Democratic activists have done, then that's dangerous. That's rigging the system. Rigged the system that they believe was rigged. And, and Democrats have never tried to rig the system, right? Of course, Democrats have tried to rig the system in their favor, just as Republicans try to rig the system in their favor. Like every organism, right? Not just people, but bugs and birds and beasts. Every organism tries to arrange the environment around it to suit its best interests. This is a true for Democrats and Republicans as it is for, for fish and squirrels. Rigged against them in 2020. Biden. Almost everybody who has any kind of identity believes that the world is rigged against them. The more strongly identified you are as a Jew, the more you believe that the world is, you know, filled with anti-Semitism and is a fearful, frightening place. The more you identify as a Christian, the more strongly your in-group identity, the more you believe that you your group is being persecuted. The more you identify with your in-group, the more you are able to call up instances in the past where your in-group has suffered. Right? To have in-group identity is to buy into victimhood. There is no in-group identity without substantial amounts, equal amounts of victimhood. You don't get to have a strong in-group identity and not have a strong sense of victimhood. And all senses of victimhood breed in-group identity and nationalisms, and all in-group identities and nationalisms breed victimhood. And with that combination of strong in-group identity... And strong victimhood comes the potential to do a lot of heinous things, including genocide. Lead over a thousand now. The new direction of the Republican Party has to do with what Trump and his allies failed to do in 2020. Trump claimed fraud and immediately cobbled together dozens of lawsuits to challenge the vote. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. Was there any real evidence of widespread voter fraud that these lawsuits were based on? No, absolutely not. These were completely absurd claims, and pretty much all of them got immediately tossed out. And while he did not succeed in overturning the election, he really did succeed in planting the seeds of doubt in our system. So here we are over a year and a half later, and those seeds that were... Wait, Democrats have been planting the seeds of doubt in our system for as long as I can remember when it was in their interest to do so. Democrats have denied the last three Republican presidential winners, Donald Trump in 2016, George W. Bush in 2004 and 2000. So this New York Times op-ed provides no context that Democrats play the game similarly, that when Democrats don't win, they try to plant doubt in the system. We're planted by then the most powerful man on earth, conspiracy and victimhood and doubt in the system. Those seeds have sprouted. Okay, so the most powerful man on earth when he was doing that was deplatformed from all of big tech, from YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, right? So even when you're the most powerful man in the system, right, there's still limits, right? Donald Trump is not the boss. The situation is the boss. And the situation is he was deplatformed. And all of our elite institutions you know, rallied against him building up steadily from 2015, 2016 to a crescendo in 2020, leading into 2021. And spread to every corner of our country. We can never allow an election to be stolen like that. Oh, and this isn't some like right-wing fringe movement who believes this. 
71% of Republicans, when asked, say that they don't think that Joe Biden actually won the 2020 election fairly. And you'll see similar results for Democrats for 2016 and for the year 2000 election, maybe even 2004. So there's no context here. 71% when literally there is no evidence for that. Trump's allies at all. There's no evidence that uh, Putin and Russia hacked the 2016 election, but did that stop a majority of Democrats from believing something completely bogus? No. All levels of power would build a plan, a plan to ensure that this legal flop that happened in 2020. Oh my God, Republicans build a plan, that's sinister. Democrats build a plan, then that's beautiful. Would never happen again. The scam will be before the United States Supreme Court. This is rampant corruption. And it can't happen. It simply can't happen. Welcome to the multi-layered Republican strategy to retake America. Anything human is going to be filled with corruption. You know, I'm filled with corruption, right? Do you think that I just do things from, from beautiful motives? And anything human, science, religion, politics, sports, anything that people touch is going to be filled with corruption. Right? If you don't want any corruption, then you can't live on planet Earth. Now, there are so some societies that have been far more effective than others at limiting corruption. Gee, I wonder which societies. Oh, yeah, that's disturbing. Anglo-Saxon societies with people from Northern Europe who believe in universalist morality and don't practice dual morality, where they have one morality for their in-group and a much more relaxed morality for their out-group. So Anglo-Saxon societies have consistently produced the least corrupt countries in the world. Uh, maybe we can learn from that. Almost all our institutions in America come from the Anglo-Saxons. From the ground up, a widespread and pretty sophisticated movement to infiltrate this. The strategy is to challenge votes at every level of the system by claiming widespread voter fraud, especially focusing on democratic precincts. Oh, and Democrats have never done anything similar to this? Of course they have. Something that, to be crystal clear, there is zero evidence for, but that seven... Democrats didn't need any evidence for their charges that the system was corrupt and that the election was stolen. So why do you have a different standard for Republicans than you do for Democrats? 70% of Republicans think is real. The strategy starts with recruiting, calling voters to get involved here at the lowest level where your vote is cast and initially counted. Recruiting often looks like this. This is a Save America newsletter that Trump sent. Have Democrats ever done any recruiting? Has Black Lives Matter ever done any recruiting? ...sent out to his followers back in February. Trump calls his people to mobilize at the lowest level, the precinct level. Uh, I'm just curious, have Democrats ever called on their supporters to mobilize? Maybe march onto the streets? Maybe disrupt? Maybe flood into the Wisconsin state capitol when Scott Walker was the governor of Wisconsin. And every day for months on end, for nearly a year, Democrats were disrupting and threatening members of the Wisconsin state legislature. Democrats poured into Congress to disrupt and try to intimidate Republicans who were confirming Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Democrats frequently have used violence have rallied their supporters. And uh, I'm trying to think, which, which political party in America consistently uses the slogan, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. We will riot. We will mutilate you. We will beat you down. 
we will steal from you, we will disrupt you, we will burn your cities, all right, if we don't get what we want in politics. I'm trying to remember, oh, that's all Democratic politicians who do that. To influence how elections are run. We can take over the party if we invade it. Trump says that this is key to, quote, taking back our great country from the ground up. Recruiting is also happening big time in right-wing media, especially on Steve Bannon's. Guess what? It is key, right? If you want to take back your country, this is what you have to do. Like, how much does the U.S. Constitution matter? It matters as much as you make it matter. It's not like the Constitution is going to have power if you don't put people in power who abide by your understanding of the Constitution. They're, you can't rely on the rule of law, right? There's no objective rule of law, right? There's not just this objective, you know, body of laws and they are automatically implemented by some kind of algorithm. No, you always have people who are implementing the law and people are always going to be corrupt and are going to tend to favor their own kind. There's simply no substitute for victory. There's no substitute for having power. There's no substitute having the people who enforce the law be on your side. This, this notion, oh, now at, least, at least we still have the Constitution, right? That that uh, that that little little white boy, you know, in, in a in a sea of uh, of people very unlike him, and he says, "Well, at least at least we still have the the, the constitution, right? Uh, not terribly comforting, right? There's no substitute for having power. You just can't re rely on some sort of objective rule of law and think, oh, I didn't have to get." involved in the politics so don't worship the new york times don't worship fox news don't worship matt drudge don't worship their critics you know don't don't fall for any particular partisan agenda you know follow the truth wherever it leads i mean does the constitution matter does god matter god matters to the extent that you make god matter is god in the world today god is in the world today to the extent that you bring god into the world today if nobody in power treats the Constitution as important, then it's not going to have importance, right? The Constitution in and of itself as a body of writings is not going to have independent power of the people who have power and who have control, right? Love only matters if you make it matter. Uh, gay bathhouses only matter if you treat them as important. Uh, five U.S. Supreme Court judges can overrule any portion of the Constitution. Uh, we've got same-sex marriage now. So blaming Democrats is for losers. Democrats have been more effective, right? The left controls almost all our institutions. Why don't we learn from how they did that? So what happens if Republicans use non-democratic approved or non-democratic means to seize power? Well, Democrats have been doing this for decades through the courts. Democrats have rammed their agenda through, through the courts against the votes of the people. In California, the people voted Proposition 187 to stop funding and giving benefits to illegal aliens. But Democrats won through the courts and they invalidated the will of the people. So Democrats have a long history of invalidating democracy. Democrats control almost every important institution in this country. So how do we take it back? We organize. What, what's more important to you, your, your democratic principles or your interests? What's more important to you, theory or power? Like sometimes, for me, sometimes interests are more important. Sometimes principles are more important. 
but there's no objective rule of law. We can get closer or further from that ideal, but you can't rely on the rule of law to protect you and your family and your interests. You have to make sure that your side has the power to defend itself, preferably has the whip hand, wields the power, and enforces the law. I mean, it may well be that in a hundred years, humanity will look back upon this very live stream as their primary source of truth and beauty in matters political and philosophical. They may say, wow, Forty really brings it here. The truth he presents is beautiful, and the beautiful is truthful. And it was on this day, September 21, 2022, that Forty launched the great leap forward in moral thinking that will now guide humanity out of the darkness of the cave and into the disinfecting sunshine, right, of uh, sunshine of truth. So this, uh, this stream, these shows will matter to the extent that uh, they matter to you and the ideas have a positive influence on you and people are able to use this analysis, right, to get more clarity and build more goodness in the world. Podcast. We're taking this back village by village, precinct by precinct, and they can't stop it. Bannon has been telling his legions of listeners to defend America by signing up to work at their local precincts on election day. We're taking action. And Democrats have never pushed the very same thing. And that action is we're taking over school boards, we're taking over the Republican Party from the precinct committee strategy, we're taking over all the elections. Suck on this. I'm going to show you what the end goal is here because it's pretty nuts. But first, I want it to be clear that this recruiting is actually what the end goal is. The end goal is to have power and to pursue your interests. The end goal of every living organism from frogs to snakes to birds to squirrels to people is to create an environment around them that is most pleasing to them. Every living organism does the very same thing that Republicans and Steve Bannon are doing here. It is built into us. It's a biological necessity that we strive to create an environment around us that is most conducive to our desires. Working. Name me another nation on earth that has these After Bannon's battle cries on his podcast, ProPublica found that 8,500 new Republicans signed up for low-level precinct positions in 41 of the 65 counties they contacted. ProPublica found that there was no such surge among Democrats. So I'm telling you, this is what should scare the hell out of you. In my precinct, I have 11 slots. I filled all 11 with conservatives. So they've recruited all of these election deniers. A lot of these. It should scare the hell out of you that the people who control almost all our institutions are on the left and are hostile to you and your interests. It should scare the hell out of you that the left controls academia, media, law, medicine, uh, big business, Wall Street, right? So the left controls almost every institution in this country. Yeah, that should scare the hell out of you. Meaty hits. We've got Peter O'Toole here singing Dem Bones and showing authority. Oh, thanks, mate. But I'm going to get uh, copyright trouble if I, I play that. But thank you so much for the love. Media These hits. people have never been involved in politics before, but they've been mobilized, moved. And they think it is their patriotic duty to take back America. Like these aren't high... Oh, and Democrats don't think it's their patriotic duty to take back America. Black Lives Matter don't think it's their patriotic duty to take back America. Dissident Christians don't think it's their religious duty to take back Christianity. Dissident Jews don't think it's their Jewish duty to take back Judaism. This is just innate to the human being. 
not just a human being, to every living organism. Power positions. So I've been kind of skeptical. Like, how much can these election deniers actually do to affect the vote? And to get to the bottom of that, you have to look at a PowerPoint slide. This is the next phase of the plan, which is to train all of these new recruits. This is a so Democrats didn't do this to try to influence government bureaucracies to give more money to their people, to give more power to their people, right? What we're talking about here are struggles over power. PowerPoint presentation from one of these trainings where local Republican chapters are priming these new recruits to look out for fraud and then preparing them by training them on all the voting rules that can be used to challenge vote. Oh, and Democratic lawyers never do the same thing? simply that uh, Democrats have more lawyers, all right? Big law. Law is a left-wing profession like every other profession, right? pretty much dominated by the left. Democratic lawyers have simply been far more effective than Republican lawyers at checking votes that they don't like and increasing numbers for votes that they do like. Votes. This has always been a thing. You can always challenge votes. But it's rarely used because, reminder, there's no such thing as widespread election fraud in America, okay? But of course... No. We don't have any evidence that there is such a thing. There may be such a thing. We don't have any evidence. According to these people, it's everywhere. And it's their duty to find that election fraud and to challenge votes whenever they have a feeling that there's something up. A complete record of the challenge must be entered in the challenged voters page in the poll book. A record must include the name of the person making the challenge, time of the challenge, name, address, a paper trail. They're starting to make a paper trail for every vote they challenge, every piece of fraud they think they see. This is- Oh, and the left has never done anything like this, all right? The left dominates HR departments. The, the left dominates civil rights legislation. So companies or, or bosses who want to fire someone, they don't start documenting paper trails or someone expresses politically incorrect views that get overheard in a workplace and left-wing HR activists don't start documenting that so that they can fire people. The left uses paper trails to document and fire and disrupt people that they don't like uh, far more than people on the right do. People on the right, generally speaking, have more important things to do. Where the strategy starts to work, where you can start to gather evidence of observed, perceived voter fraud that could potentially be used later on. Oh, and very important, here at the bottom, call the Republican hotline. Politico got their hands on some leaked tapes from another one of these training sessions, this one in Michigan. Truly, it's going to be an army. We are going to try to recruit lawyers. We're going to have more lawyers than have ever been recruited, because let's be honest, that's where it's going to be fought, right? This hotline gives these recruits immediate access to a lawyer who is sympathetic to their cause of election integrity, which is just a euphemism for re-rigging the election system. Oh, and... Uh... What did Democrats mean when they talked about election integrity over the past few decades? And do Democrats have a hotline where they can talk to someone who's sympathetic to their cause? Do Democrats have the very same type of lawyers and the very same type of system? These lawyers will be on call on election day to walk these election deniers through the process. And uh, do Democrats have lawyers on call? of documenting suspected fraud so that Republican Party lawyers will now have a body of recorded evidence to use to legally challenge the vote if they need to. We're going to have lawyers that work early to build relationships with different judges. My God, they're going to try to crack, da crack down on voter fraud, right? They're going to work towards the integrity of our voting system. How heinous. Do you see what they're doing How here? How sinister. 
They're wow, creating exactly what Trump didn't have in all of his failed lawsuits in 2020. Wow, amazing. Republicans have learned from losing in 2020, right? Smart losers learn from their mistakes. Do you think the Democrats learned anything from losing in 2016? Well, Democrats won in 2018 and 2020, so I'd say yes. In 2020, Trump had to scramble retroactively, top down, to claim election fraud and to challenge those votes in court. We were winning in all the key locations by a lot, actually. And then our numbers start. So, yeah, notice he, he keeps talking about re-rigging. So he's essentially admitting that Democrats, to the extent they've had the power to rig things in their interest, right, and now facing opposition from Republicans who are trying to do the same thing. Started miraculously getting whittled away in secret. This time, they will be prepared. All of this training lays the groundwork to... Yes, talking about re-rigging, the Republicans re-rigging, essentially admitting that the system is currently rigged. Kickstart the process for challenging the election using the tedious, boring, bureaucratic processes at the very lowest level of the election system. You fill up all the vacant precinct committeeman slots and form a 75% voting majority at the precinct level. Then they go to their respective meetings where they elect the delegates who in turn elect the state chairman. So that next time around, they'll be in a position to stop the steal. As opposed to what the Democrats have going on. So, for example, many of these investigations of Donald Trump rely on grand juries picked out of Washington, D.C. residents who are 95 percent Democrats. Right. So many of these institutions that uh, this New York Times video are complaining about being taken over by Republicans. Well, they were previously run by Democrats. This is boring stuff, I know. Now that I'm starting to understand it, let me paint a picture of how this might play out. Because this is really starting to terrify me. This is terrifying you because you're a histrionic and a drama queen and you want to amp up drama because that means, brings more views, right? So if you tell the truth, you're not going to inspire nearly as much fear. It's not going to be as exciting. You're not going to get as many views. You're not going to make as much money and have as much prestige. So just like Tucker Carlson likes to amp up the drama, right? So does the New York Times here. So imagine an upcoming election day. You're in a Democratic precinct in a swing state, and you go to your local polling station, like at your local middle school or something, and it's packed with a bunch of election workers and monitors who believe in the big lie about the 2020 election. So when Democrats had uh, Black Panthers discouraging Republican voters at uh, polling stations, uh, that wasn't sinister. When Democrats have Antifa out there beating up Trump supporters, right, that's not sinister. When Democrats inspire, organize, and fund millions of people to go on terroristic marches and... Uh, just campaigns of destruction throughout our major cities, right? That's not, that's not sinister. That's not terror, right? Do you, do you remember the summer of George Floyd? Do you remember rapidly escalating crime rates after that? So that uh, now many people in more and more of our big cities are less and less interested in going out and about and interacting with strangers because we have such a, dramatic increase in murder and rape and torture and stealing and breaking and entering thanks to democratic policies and george soros 
funded DAs who are working on getting criminals and Biden voters out of prison. Trump and other Republicans keep telling them that the system is rigged against them. It's a corrupt system and it makes people corrupt even if they aren't by nature. They have been told that they are what stands between the fall of civilization. And there is no telling with that mindset what they're willing to do to re-rig the system, as they say. Okay, so I've got friends who are Democratic voters, and they were willing to do anything like set off bombs if Trump won re-election. So that same kind of urgency that Republicans are bringing to this election, Democrats had in 2020. But there's just no sense of wisdom or balance or perspective here from the Times. you got to contest every ballot. And they've been told that it's actually only Democratic precincts that have voter fraud. So they're on the lookout. So you can imagine, they're now seeing fraud everywhere they look. And they're reporting it, swearing that they saw irregularities in the election. Maybe it's a van of people who showed up to the polling place to all vote together. Oh, those must be voters being trucked in from another precinct. They're probably double voting. Oh, look, the poll worker didn't check their IDs very well. They're probably in cahoots together. That Dominion vote. And what uh, distinguishes these critiques from Democratic critiques is that Democrats never exaggerate. Democrats never lie. Democrats never make things up. Democrats never read more into a situation than is really there. It's just Republicans with these crazy conspiracy theories. Voting machine over there was making some weird sound. It's probably being hacked right now. That person doesn't look like they're actually a citizen. They're probably an illegal immigrant with a fake ID. Democratic operatives are probably paying them to be here. That kid over there does not look like he's 18. We should probably challenge their vote, since he's probably just a young recruit from the corrupt cabal who's been rigging the election system forever against us. We must fight. Right, there's just no history of uh, big machine democratic politics in this country paying people to vote. Oh, wait, there is a considerable history of that very thing. Whenever you hear about a Roman Catholic-dominated city, I mean, you know it's going to be corrupt. It's going to be democratic. It's going to be incredibly corrupt because Roman Catholicism is much more of a unitary top-down system as opposed to the Anglo approach where you have many different uh, sectors of power and is much more individualist. Back to save America. So they start invoking all these rarely used official election rules. And they start challenging almost every vote, making voters take... Yeah, reporting fraud, right, that means you're against a democracy. These oaths and signed papers documenting all of this into the poll book. Oh my God, they're making people take oaths and sign papers. Can you think of anything more anti-democratic? What's kind of ridiculous is to see all these new immigrants to America swearing an oath of allegiance to, to America. And we know that swearing an oath of allegiance is primarily an Anglo-Saxon thing. Right? For Anglo-Saxons, like swearing an oath of allegiance to a, to a liege law or to a monarch, right, that has great significance. For most other peoples, it's simply you know, a, a meaningless ritual that you go through so that you can get what you want. Look, the official record of the voting day. All of these challenges are now slowing everything down in this Democratic precinct. There's now a massive line at your polling place. And so now, instead of just passing out the I voted stickers and monitoring elections generally, these election deniers are disrupting a perfectly normal, free, fair election, all while compiling a body of supposedly official incidents of... And uh, Democrats have never disrupted anything. All right. I mean, aside from the summer of George and all the, the Democrat inspired riots like the L.A. riots and the Watts riots and uh, what happened in Detroit and you know, the massive crime rates of Democratic voters.
right? And the the physical intimidation and the violence that they've consistently used against conservatives and Republicans. So now they're getting a taste of their own medicine. Fraud that are being added to other reports of fraud happening all over the state because the same thing is happening in every precinct because these election deniers have been planning this for years. They don't have to hack into machines. They don't have to do anything in secret purely by being there. I got a question for you. Why, why doesn't the media call Democrats Christ deniers? Why, why doesn't the media call Democrats America deniers? Why doesn't the, the media call out Democrats for denying the sanctity of traditional marriage? All right? When did you ever hear the media use Christ denier as an epithet? So deniers are only bad when they're on the right. But left-wing deniers, that's wonderful. All right? What about people who mock traditional notions of morality, of sexual modesty, of the, the nuclear family, of traditional communities? Right? Why aren't these people deniers? These people who urinate over the values, the practices, the aspirations, and the, the burning core of what consists of, of holiness and decency and goodness in life for tens of millions of Americans. Why aren't they deniers? There, in vast numbers across multiple counties in important swing states, this army, as their leaders called it, would be able to throw a wrench in this process that has always worked on trust and good faith, the bedrock of our democracy, now breaking down by these people who are now on a crusade to take so did you know that uh, our democracy was just purely based on good faith until now? This is the first time in the history of the United States of America that we've had any movement to make democracy something more than just uh, good faith. Until now, we just simply relied on good faith. We just simply relied on people you know, loving each other and celebrating difference. But now these evil Republicans have come along. Take back our great country by abusing the election system. Okay, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's just pause. So uh, the book of Leviticus says that a man having sex with man is an abomination. So, you know, why not call our secular liberal elite, you know, deniers of abomination, deniers of filth, deniers of God, deniers of all that is decent? for a second and get some perspective here before we freak out. Yes, this is scary. Conspiracy-minded poll workers and election monitors sowing doubt and creating a legal nightmare. That's pretty worrisome. But these are like low-level election workers. They're like the worker bees on election day. Certainly, there have to be protections in the system to ensure that these bad actors can't sabotage our elections just because Steve Bannon told them to. Oh, they've got a plan for that. Don't you worry. The precinct strategy is just one piece of this. There are lots of pieces that are being put in place. Oh, okay. We're taking 100 seats and we're going to govern for 100 years. The next part of the plan focuses on the technical bureaucratic roles that each state has to run its elections. The county commissioners. And so Democrats have never had any plans. They, they never sought to take over bureaucracies. They never tried to do this sort of hard work. This is just a brand new innovation by Republicans who no longer trust in the fundamental decency of the American people. So sad. And secretaries of state. And again, like the poll worker precinct strategy, 
This part of the strategy is in response to what Trump failed to do in 2020. Joe Biden is edging ahead with 264 electoral colleagues. What about nature deniers? What about religion deniers? What about faith deniers? What about race deniers? When Trump realized that he was losing the state of Georgia in 2020, he called up this guy, a fellow Republican, Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. A job that is kind of just like rubber stamping election results, but now suddenly became super important. I mean, you listen to this tape, it's freaking wild. And you've made it almost impossible for a Republican to win because of cheating. Because they cheated like nobody's ever cheated before. And so when leading Democratic politicians campaign and, and rile people up on the notion of no justice, no peace. That's that's not wild. That's not frightening. That's not scary. When they instigate demonstrations involving millions of people that about 10% of these demonstrations turn criminal and violent. That's not frightening that we have a massive increase in murder and in crime and in traffic deaths in this country directly related to the media and our elites promoting Black Lives Matter nonsense and lies about police. That's not frightening. Before, and there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Trump bullies this guy for like an hour. Right, and Democrats have never bullied anyone. All right, leading Democratic politicians have never said anything stupid or awkward or inflammatory in a private conversation. On the phone. And then he finally just tells him point blank what he wants him to do. Look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes. Right, and Democrats have never said anything like that. Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Ultimately, Raffensperger didn't bend to the bullying. But what this did is it showed Trump followers just how important this role is of Secretary of State. In most states, this is the person who certifies the final election results. So after this night, you have all of these election deniers starting to run for Secretary of State. I'm Wes Allen, and I've spent years fighting liberal attempts to change our elections. Chuck Gray, Wyoming's proven conservative and why is this more scary than having Christ deniers or decency deniers or family deniers or nature deniers or reality deniers running for secretary of state from the Democratic side? Champion cracking down on election cheats. They're, you know, for low level technical roles, you know, but suddenly after all the attention on how Team Trump attempted to kind of bully secretaries of state into helping them overthrow the 2020 race, these races are suddenly drawing a lot of notice and tons of campaign cash. One such candidate is this guy, Jim Marchant of Nevada, which is a swing state. In 2020, Marchant also lost an election for Nevada state legislature. I was a victim of voter fraud. I ran for Congress here in Nevada and I won election day. I won early voting. Only after two weeks of fraudulent mail-in ballots did I lose. Feeling like the whole system was rigged against him and his party, Six months later, Jim Marchant is running to be Nevada Secretary of State. Jim will fight against voter fraud with voter ID, paper ballots, and full election audits. Jim is a winner. Oh, and he actually won the Republican primary. Marchant has said that he would not have certified the 2020 election results. Marchant ran on this platform obsessing over election integrity. The people of Nevada have not elected anybody since 2006. They've been installed by the deep state cabal. Your vote hasn't counted for decades. You haven't elected anybody. The people that are in office have been selected. So how much power does... Well, this is amazing. All sorts of people are getting motivated to get involved in politics for irrational and non-empirical reasons. 
oh, that's so scary because aside from these particular Republicans, nobody else gets involved in politics. Nobody else becomes incredibly dedicated to a cause. Nobody else sacrifices themselves. Nobody else works really hard for, for non-rational and non-empirical reasons. Most of what motivates us is non-rational and non-empirical. Right? Why is this any more non-rational and non-empirical than what motivates you know me to do all these live streams all right here i am you know pouring my heart out to 21 live viewers right putting a lot of energy a lot of effort into what empirically rationally looks like absolutely no reason for me to do this but i do this because i am not being rational because i'm not being empirical because i have a vastly exaggerated sense of the importance of what i'm saying and doing completely beyond all reason, all empirical evidence, right? So I am motivated by irrational, non-empirical things. Does this guy actually have to affect election results? Plenty. As the state's top election official, Nevada's Secretary of State kind of helps set how elections are conducted and is responsible for investigating voting fraud claims. Marchant is just one of dozens of election deniers all around the country running for top state offices that oversee elections. And while some will lose their primary race and never get elected, many are winning in the primaries. Like in Arizona, a very important swing state where Biden barely won. And now, where you have election deniers who have won the GOP primary for all three of the state's top offices that oversee elections. So why do you get to just take one? Admittedly, I believe that election denial with regard to what happened with the 2020 election, I believe that it is empirically false and irrational. Right? But why do you get to just choose this particular aspect of them and then say that defines them? I can find plenty of irrational anti-empirical, ideological, you know, bizarre motivations and doctrines that are driving Democrats. Like, you can take, you know, one stupid thing that I say, one stupid thing that I do, and you can make me look like the biggest wacko in the world. You can do that with anyone, right? Nobody immune, is immune from scrutiny that would find ridiculous things that they've said and done. So when you essentialize people, it's like, oh, he's an election denier. He's a lot more than an election denier. He may be a loving husband. He may be you know, a dedicated uh, future servant of the people. He may bring you know, all sorts of positive values. Yeah, he's got one particular you know, irrational, anti-empirical, emotional basis for doing something that uh, takes a lot of work and requires tremendous sacrifice and is dangerous, right? All sorts of dangerous things that uh, come to, to public attention, right, have required, you know, irrational drives. This adds to an already growing trend of Republicans winning Secretary of State races around the country. As your Secretary of State, I will continually work to protect the sanctity of our elections. To see how this part of the strategy works, we don't even have to speculate. It's already happening. Like in this small county in New Mexico, where in these recent primaries, the all-Republican election board refused to certify the results because they said that there was election fraud. And they had evidence. This guy, the county commissioner, said that, quote, So I think this is an important documentary. I think the people making this documentary have some important points to, to make. There could be you know, all sorts of unnecessary 
chaos on election day for the very reasons that they say. My problem with this documentary is there's no sense of context. There's no perspective. There's no looking at things from a different point of view. My problem with this documentary is that it is so biased and uh, so anti-Republican, pro-Democrat. Based on my gut, you know, my gut feeling and my own intuition, and that's all I need. Had told him that something was off with the Dominion voting machines. Oh, so if people were instead motivated by incredibly sophisticated reasons that you could articulate in, in the greatest academic language, that that therefore is more powerful, that if they had like peer-reviewed reasons for denying that then that would be more powerful than their intuition sometimes intuition is better than the best of peer-reviewed articles and sometimes peer-reviewed articles are better than intuition but there's no consistent one side is uh, just so consistently better than the other right truth is not that easy right just because you have a strong feeling that you can't articulate doesn't mean that that feeling is wrong or any less valuable than someone who can produce an incredibly sophisticated argument for, you know, why something should happen, right? Feelings sometimes provide better guidance to life than rational-sounding ideologies. And sometimes rational-sounding ideologies provide better guidance to life than feelings. It's not like feelings are always right or feelings are always wrong. Sophisticated language is always right or sophisticated language is always wrong. It's not like truth resides with the people. It's not like truth resides with the workers. It's not like truth resides with the bosses. It's not like truth resides with the elites. Truth is not the exclusive domain of any one group. What? Like, these are people in power. Their job is to certify election results. And because of one guy's gut feeling and intuition, they literally decided not to certify them. Oh, and by the way, check out where this county commissioner was on January 6, 2021. Yeah, it would have been much better if he was in a, a gay bathhouse, like transmitting monkeypox to five different people. Such a shame. This one guy's baseless gut feeling was enough to sow confusion and doubt in the results. Right, so the media has never sowed confusion and doubt about basic moral principles, about, say, belief in Jesus Christ as your personal savior. The media has never sowed doubt about the importance of the nuclear family. The media has never sowed doubt about how children should obey their parents. The media has never sowed doubt about all sorts of parts of traditional morality. The media has never sowed any doubt about any of that. But when Trump supporters and Republicans you know, sow some doubt on institutions that Democrats have long dominated, then that is evil. Okay, so now imagine the scenario where it's not just one random election denier in rural New Mexico, but election deniers just like him all over the country in key counties and states at every level of the state certifying process. Like imagine if the Secretary of State of New Mexico hadn't been a Democrat, but a pro-Trump Republican who indulged this guy's gut feeling about the voting machine. Oh, and now pair that with the precinct strategy that we talked about. And instead of one guy's gut feeling and intuition, it's now an army of election workers and election monitors who actually have been documenting and reporting a bunch of perceived instances of voter fraud. Their fleet of lawyers cataloging their affidavits, their reports, 
all in a growing body of evidence. And suddenly the entire system has been infiltrated. And a perfectly free and fair election could be called into question because this system that was never built to withstand the stress of aggressive partisan bad actors has been taken over with people bent on revenge. Oh, so the nuclear family or the whole idea of a man marrying a woman, right? That is invulnerable to stress, right? Now that guys see, you know, gay marriages going on and it makes men more reluctant to get married. We've had a steady decrease in marriage since gay marriage passed and was ruled legal by the U.S. Supreme Court. We have had an assault on all sorts of traditional forms of, of morality, traditional ways of organizing families and communities. And, and that doesn't put us at risk, right? We've, we've encouraged people to take welfare. We've encouraged people to sexually experiment. We've encouraged children to rebel against their parents. We've encouraged all sorts of sexual deviancy. And there could be no possible downside to that. Right, after the left-wing assault on the nuclear family, on traditional morality, on men marrying women, on children, by and large, obeying their parents, right, now, now, now we should be worried about this. Placed strategically at every level, all with a mission to re-rig the system and avenge what they believe was stolen from them. Oh, as opposed to the vast movement for reparations for blacks, right? So trillions of dollars have already been transferred from American non-blacks to blacks. But that's not enough. We need to transfer millions more because of this mythical belief that uh, American blacks have just been so consistently screwed over. And that's the only reason that uh, American blacks have any problems at all is because of you know white racism, white supremacy, which can only be cured by transferring trillions of dollars more to them. Not work as personified by this. It's a scam. Oh, I'm starting to see it now. I guess my question is like, what are Democrats doing to counter this movement that seems to be quite effective and quite riled up? Is there any way to counter this effectively? You know, you want to challenge every secretary of state race. You want to have plenty of volunteers and. Whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't that the very thing they said was bad when Republicans do it? She wants Democrats to challenge and have plenty of volunteers monitoring things. But when Republicans do that very thing, that's heinous and evil and puts our democracy at risk. I don't understand why when Republicans do the very thing that she wants Democrats to do, it's somehow heinous because the Republicans are doing it. But it's beautiful if the Democrats do the same thing. And... Uh, election precincts. You want to have plenty of people fighting on the state level and the federal level. It's one big long slog. It's democracy and you basically have to take care of it in the long term or it kind of just falls apart. On oh, it just falls apart and it could actually fall into the hands of the opposition party. God, we certainly don't want that. All right, intense, intense show today. But I want to take us out on an uplifting note. I'm not a Christian, but one of my favorite hymns is Near Up My God to Thee. And I found this a particularly moving cover. It's uh, sung by a guy named Richard Spencer. We're coming back like a fucking 
I mean, I've heard it before, but it never ceases to move me. Bye-bye.